Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Annie. Yeah, hello out there, listeners. This is Solidarity Breakfast for your politics with your Wheaties. And uh, we're going to focus on affordable housing. Oh, God, it's been a... It's been a bad run. Yeah, it has been. You were out last night telling people about affordable housing, apparently. Yeah, I was doing a petition uh, demanding affordable housing that they stop the public housing sell-off. Didn't get the... Uh, overwhelming response that we would have liked on a Friday night, but not bad. Not bad, yeah. Uh, well, there was it was very busy, but it was also very cold. Everyone was rushing around being fast last night. Uh, but uh, you don't have to be fast this morning. You can listen to a variety of stuff we've got to put forward to you around uh, affordable housing. Very interesting conversation that was held at uh, Trades Hall, uh, a socialist alternative. They uh, had uh, a speaker, Louise Bessena, Bessena, Bessena? Bessina's probably better pronunciation, who's a lawyer out at uh, West Heidelberg who had some interesting uh, things to say that, uh, one, about uh, Glenfell in uh, London, which was a public housing estate that uh, caught on fire and incinerated quite a, a large amount of public housing residents and has um, posed many questions around a government handling of public housing. And many of the things that have happened there are actually some of the policies and programs have been holus bolus brought over here. And that's why it's uh, important the connections are made. Uh, we then went go on and talk to uh, Kate Shaw, now one of her uh, students at Melbourne Uni. He has uh, He was brought up in... Uh, the Carlton Public Housing Estate, and uh, he uh, has uh, written, she co-authored a paper around uh, the social mix concept. Mm, Which the Andrews government um, has been introducing. Using. Using. Using to uh, support the the sell-off of basically nine of the uh, low-rise public housing estates, Northcote, Brunswick East, Heidelberg West, North Melbourne, Clifton Hill, Flemington, Paran, Hawthorne and Preston. What are the things that uh, uh, are common denominators about those particular suburbs? Prime real estate. <laughs> Funny that. Yeah. yeah. And then we go to uh, extend, uh, defend and extend public housing. They went to the uh, 
Parliament steps on Thursday and uh, demanded demanded an explanation. But more than that, Joe Toscano gives us a three-point plan for uh, how uh, we can win this campaign, uh, which is a fabulous thing. So uh, we've got other things going on later in the program, but uh, let's hear from the anarchists. Bring down the covenant, bring it to its heel. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Yep, that's right. Bring the government down now. Uh, Maybe in a slow... um, Oh, it's a bit like the uh, scaffolding around uh, uh, one of the... uh, uh, Intersections up in, I think it was uh, Carlton. Was that Flemington yeah. Road? And <laughs> right. I was just going past that and I was like, what Ooh. have they done? Or, well, what have they not done? Yeah, well, as someone was saying, that uh, they had said that they had uh, signage up to uh, warn pedestrians. Be careful, may fall on you at any minute. Is that. <laughs> Except I think the signs came up later. <laughs> After it had fallen down. Yes. Oh, it is really, really They're just sad. so lucky with these things that they don't hurt more people. It's just pure luck. Pure luck, pure luck. Yeah, yeah. That just uh, underlines why uh, health and safety and uh, people uh, genuinely independent, well, people who are actually interested in worker and public safety go in on sites. And, you know, I don't them. think a sign gets you off the hook anyway. <laughs> I don't think so either. Let's go to Louisa Vecina. Uh, talking about public housing and uh, Glenfell. The official death toll stands at 80, but it seems that it's still significantly less than what the final count will be. Ground floor resident Abdul Suleiman, who witnessed the disaster, said he counted faces in the windows of the upper floors, who he knows were unable to survive. He said, I saw them with my eyes at the windows. It has to be more who died. As the full picture came to light in the days that followed, In many ways, the real horror emerged, that the fire was entirely predictable and preventable, and yet it happened anyway. Here was an atrocity that exposed the sheer violence of neoliberalism, austerity, and indifference to the voices and lives of the poor. We learned that residents had been told to stay put in their rooms because the block had been designed according to rigorous fire safety standards, but that in actual fact, the building had no fire sprinkler system, defunct fire extinguishers, no whole building alarm system, faulty wiring, no fire safe doors and broken elevators. We learned that the apparent danger of the building was documented in a report that successive housing ministers, one of them Theresa May's new chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, had ignored. The residents organised as the Grenfell Tower Action Group had protested and pleaded with their landlord, the Kensington Chelsea Tenant Management Office and local council to improve fire safety in the building warning that something disastrous of this sort was otherwise bound to happen. We learned that instead improvements done to the building included the installation of external aluminium and plastic cladding to make the tower look nicer for its wealthy neighbours. The cladding was flammable, non-compliant and chosen over non-flammable material only $8,000 cheaper. 
We learned that three fire stations near to Grenfell had recently closed due to funding cuts, that legislation introduced to make all homes fit for human habitation had been voted down by the Tory government, 72 of those ministers being landlords, that the Kensington and Chelsea borough in which this happened is one of the most wealthy in all of England, home to billionaires living only blocks away from some of the poorest, many, migrant, many from migrant and refugee backgrounds. <coughs> So then, with all of that information coming to the surface, it seemed like Theresa May's government and the Kensington Council would be desperate to prove people wrong in concluding that they were ultimately to blame for this disaster. Instead, quite incredibly, we saw the opposite. A refusal by May to come and meet with survivors, calculated underestimations of the death toll up until now, a total lack of coordination of the relief effort for survivors. It was almost as though they were sociopaths that didn't give a shit about the suffering that had been inflicted and were busying themselves only with minimising any adverse political impact. And if you contrast their silence and inaction with the outrage that they display for those lost to terrorist attacks when there's an opportunity for racist scapegoating and distraction, you can be sure of that. There were a number of um, Channel 4 reports circulating on the internet interviewing the community in and around the Grenfell Tower. And what struck me most when I watched them um, was not just the rage that people were, were expressing, but the absolute certainty that those people had um, of who was to blame. It was obvious to all. Those killed in the Grenfell Tower died because they were poor, because they were considered dispensable to a ruling class single-mindedly driven by profit who lives only blocks away from them. And to the media, one resident said, you come when people die, you should have come here before. It was only because of this angry response of community members and their supporters, which included a number of protests, some of them quite militant, one which um, broke into and occupied local council offices, that finally there was some response from government. Together with entirely, the entirely sensible call of Corbyn that survivors should be housed in the borough, um, in empty properties in the borough, which was met with ridicule, the pressure on local government built up to the point where it announced that it would use 68 social housing, housing flats in the luxury Kensington Row Estate uh, development, sorry, to rehouse survivors. And this won't house the many sub-tenants and flat owners made homeless by the fire, um, and it's not an immediate solution or an adequate answer, but it's a win that came out of the protests. The announcement as well by police that they would consider manslaughter charges um, came from that immense community response, and there might otherwise have been no criminal investigation of those responsible. In the relief effort too, it was ordinary people who made and distributed donations, provided places to sleep and volunteered their time. The response of the rich, on the other hand, was epitomised by a Kensington Row apartment owner who told radio listeners she would be resentful and would move if those who lost their homes in the recent fire were rehoused in her complex because she has worked very hard to afford her luxury property and she doesn't get anything for free. So that's the sentiment at the other end of the class spectrum. And it gets you thinking about how many conservative politicians, property investors and rich scum in the area were waiting and hoping that something like this, maybe on a smaller, less deadly scale perhaps, would happen to justify pulling down the tower and relocating its residents out of sight. Why else would they have ignored the signs that the building was a death trap for so long? But both the extent of the disaster and the furious response from the community have had the opposite effect. They've brought the issues of substandard housing to the fore. And more broadly, class inequality um, 
and, and it's now at the centre of the debate, centre of debate in England. These questions demand answers that challenge the broader economic backdrop of neoliberalism, because it's the drive to profit of the capitalist system that's at the core of all of it. Here in Australia, though there might not have been a disaster of the sort of Grenfell, the same dynamics are at play. Successive Liberal and Labor governments have embraced the view that the build, building and managing of public housing should no longer be a role of the state, um, and that the assets tied up in it, our assets, will be better cashed in on. Year after year, the stock has been sold or neglected with the ultimate aim of granting all power to the private market. There are still around 127,000 public tenants in Victoria, but public housing is now increasingly oriented um, to offering a temporary fallback from the private market, not homes that tenants can expect to raise a family in and treat as their own for as long as they're alive. This represents a market shift from even 15 years ago when governments still considered public housing to be an essential part of the mix. Since then, there's been a constant effort to grind down or straight out evict tenants living in um, sought-after areas so that the land can be sold to developers. In Melbourne, Paran, Carlton, Northcote, lucrative areas that are deemed too nice for the poor have been or will be subject to private redevelopment with Labor's really progressive-sounding social mix approach. And this consists of prime public land being sold to developers on the condition that they'll build two-thirds private and one-third public um, housing. But Melbourne University recently published a report by Kate Shaw and Abdullahi Jama, which detailed how the Carlton development, rather than encouraging social mixing of classes, has very carefully maintained segregated living. There are separate entrances for private and public, public um, residents, some even facing different streets. The private residents of the apartment buildings on the corner of Ligon and Rathdown streets also have exclusive access to a garden courtyard that public residents can only look at from their balconies. In other areas like where I work, West Heidelberg, there's no social mix approach, I guess because the whole suburb is just poor. Um, and the orientation there is to renew the housing, essentially by cannibalising old homes to make way for new ones. There's little to no expansion of the stock the project is largely funded by the sale of old and vacant properties. And, though the project and while the project moves at a snail's pace, it's constantly used to justify the state of disrepair of current homes. They won't spend any money fixing repairs because the houses are to be torn down at some indefinite point in the future. We see mould problems where tenants have letter upon letter from their doctor saying um, this property is dangerous and almost certainly the cause of illnesses such as um, eczema, asthma and pneumonia um, that children living in the houses are enduring um, and they might even have expert reports done to show that the levels of mould are dangerous um, and yet it still meets with indifference from DHHS. It's, not, it's also not uncommon for families to be living seven people in a two bedroom house. Um, I have a current client who sleeps with her husband in one bedroom while her five children aged two to fifteen sleep in the other. Um, she's seeing me about a different issue. There's nothing I can do to help her about that. That's just the, the state of affair, affairs. Um, and, but it's still the case that the rent is capped at 25% of the pension income and there's some security, um, degree of security of tenure. The alternatives, the private rental market or homelessness, are much worse for people on low incomes. And that's why there's 300,000 people still on wait lists in Victoria or 160,000 households. Um, 
and yet this is used as a, uh, an example of why you just can't go complaining about your five kids sleeping in one bedroom because supposedly it's a privilege now to have a public housing house. It's in this context that Victorian Housing Minister Martin Foley says straight-faced that the state is a terrible housing manager. This systematic neglect, rather than prompting a drastic and immediate increase in funding, is used to argue for a transfer of stock to the private sector. Healthcare, transport, education, aged care, disability services, all of it. The government runs it into the ground and then shrugs and says, oh, well, it would be better off in private hands. And this happened with public, public housing largely without question because it's done under the cover of transferring stock to specialist community housing providers. Last year, the state government transferred uh, the title of over $500 million worth of public housing stock to one such organisation, Aboriginal Housing Victoria, dressing the move up as some kind of self-determination for Aboriginal people. But these organisations are in every way worse landlords for tenants to live under than the Department of Health and Human Services. Though they all also only charge around 20, charge 25% of a tenant's pension income as rent, they have far fewer policies around the protection of tenants' rights, less security of tenure, and operate much more in the manner of unaccountable private real estate agents. So what about this private market that our governments are so dead set on? How well is it working out for everyone? The property boom, obviously a goldmine for a small few, has led to home ownership rates over the last 30 years declining more than 30% for those aged between 25 and 34, almost 20% for the 35 to 44 year old segment, and more than 10% for 45 to 50 year olds. Renting in the private market has become the only option for a big chunk of people, and it's nonetheless expensive. A household is considered to be in housing stress if it spends more than 30% of its income on rent or mortgage repayments. Between 2008 and 2014, the proportion of low-income um, households experiencing housing stress grows from 35% to 42%. The ideal of home ownership has long been encouraged as a means by which the massive um, a means by which to tie the mass of the population to the market and to the system, and to have a stake in the system. Um, it's given those working-class people in Australia who could own a home. Um, the kind of self-imposed discipline and social compliance that the ruling class needs. But the property boom, spurred on by government policy, has shifted this system into overdrive. The price increase of residential property has seen it become widely subject to investment and speculation from a layer of people, from a layer of people who already have somewhere to live, but who want somewhere to store their assets. They're assisted in this project by property-related tax concessions like negative gearing that cost the federal budget more than $7 billion every year. More than half of these tax breaks go to investors in the top 10% income bracket. And this not only fuels house price increases, but means that funding for essential services is also reduced. The growth in property prices and low interest rates has meant that even if an investor buys a house, leaves it to stand empty and collects no rental income, they can still make a stack of cash once it appreciates as an asset. As investment has expanded, most areas that have some proximity to the city, infrastructure, places of work, lively pubs and so on, have fallen to this process. The market has pushed and shoved and subdivided its way into these areas, offering properties back in renovated and prohibitively expensive forms, or as the ubiquitous, flimsy, 
yet overpriced new build rentals and apartments. This reordering of who belongs where um, results in the poorest being pushed to the city's fringes. Areas where you have to drive significant distances to get to any form of public transport or places of recreation, let alone the commute to work. A recent study by consultancy firm SGS Economics and Planning found almost every suburb in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane to be extremely unaffordable. And that means that 60% um, or more of income spent on rent. So extremely unaffordable, sorry, for a, for a single person on Newstart. People who can share or live with family in order to manage will be forced to do so. But for, say, a single parent of children who needs a whole home, the situation is absolutely dire. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. Yes, and we might be harping on this issue of affordable housing, but it needs to be harped upon. It does. It is. And it's quite clear that it's the developers that are taking the clean sweep. And uh, we were able to talk to Kate Shaw uh, about uh, the paper that uh, was brought up in that discussion uh, because this business about y- using the same uh, neoliberal economics that has been thrown out with uh, the bathwater and the baby in England, mm. Thatcherite England, Blairite England, now transferred here, is just still bubbling along as if there's no problem with with the politics of it. This uh, anyway, uh, even by their own standards, they're essentially making older people use housing as a form of pension or welfare in old age. Now they've created this whole class of majority of people who are not going to own a home when they're 60 or 70. So they're creating a huge problem even for themselves. This is this is um, social engineering at, mm. at, at, a, at a very high level. I think Stephen Jolly put it really well when he said, yeah, they want some good sorts, you know, working class people. You know, the little need, slavies. Yeah, exactly, who'll behave themselves to, you know, live in the cities, everyone else out. Yeah, everyone else. He's exactly right. Anyway, this is what Kate Shaw had to say. It's actually a draft paper that um, my master's student, Abdullahi Jama, uh, and I wrote together um, and submitted to Housing Studies, which is an academic journal, earlier this year. The reason why we uh, got some media coverage um, about the paper a couple of weeks ago uh, is because the issue is so hot and so topical now and the Victorian government has just announced another redevelopment program on another nine or so estates. So rather than waiting the six months for the paper to get peer-reviewed and finally come out in some kind of arcane academic journal, we thought it was actually really important to get it out now and, and be discussed. It was looking at the redevelopment of the Carlton Estate, which is that one on the corner of, um, of, of La Corner Rathdown and also on the corner of Elgin and Nicholson Street, this, the third site further down um, on the former Queen Elizabeth Hospital site uh, on the corner of uh, Swanston Street and Cemetery Road. So there are three sort of components now of the redeveloped um, Carlton public housing estate. Abdul Hali approached me to supervise his thesis because he knows that I have a... Um, a, a very keen uh, and critical perspective on... Uh, redevelopment um, of low-income um, neighbourhoods in general, particularly in the context of gentrification. 
and I've been looking very closely at the social mix um, literature over the years, uh, particularly as it comes out of America and 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 uh, and, and England uh, out of the UK. I'm not convinced that um, social mix should be this kind of unquestioned, unmitigated policy orthodoxy. It's not always great. Uh, it, it can be. It doesn't have to be. Uh, and then it gets complicated because even if something, a redevelopment is done under the guise of social mix, it doesn't necessarily end up with social mix. Uh, so he was very interested in having... Um, a look at how the redevelopment was going on on a place that he knows extremely well. Um, it works like this. The government demolished um, all of the walk-ups on the Carlton Estate, um, which was um, a couple of hundred. Um, and the same thing happened in the uh, Kensington redevelopment. Then a private developer is engaged to come in onto the estate rebuild uh, and, and, and replace um, the public housing stock and build private housing, uh, the sales of which cover the, the, uh, the costs of um, building new public housing stock. Right? Uh, and in the process of that, the land for the private component gets sold to the developer and they can then sell the the private units at whatever um, price they can get for it. Meaning, in the case of Kensington and Carlton, at least, uh, the developers walked away with a healthy profit. Did the same amount of public tenants get places to live? Uh, in Kensington, definitely not. Um, there were about 200 uh, units, public housing units, lost on the estate. Um, and there were uh, many more private than new public residences built so that the resultant mix ended up in about a 50-50 mix of public to private. In Carlton, um, there were 192 units that were demolished. They were the the walk-ups. Now, they were replaced by 246 new units. Right, so there is a uh, an actual increase in number of units um, by a little over 50. The thing is that the units that were demolished in the walk-ups were mainly uh, three-bedroom units, and they have been replaced by studio bedsits and, and, and one- and two-bedroom units. So, so not for families? Not for definitely not for families, um, and there has been an overall reduction in the number of beds. So there are fewer public tenants on the estate. Um, but it's, you know, I mean, the department does this. They do this kind of little tricky thing where they talk about units rather than individuals to, to, to make the figures look as good as they can. But um, in fact, there has been, on our estimate, there has probably been a drop in the total public housing population, individuals, of, of, of around 150. Uh, what your, your master's student was actually looking at was the social mix and if it had actually been successful. What kind exactly. of markers did he use? Mainly talking to people, um, but, but, but also um, 
crucially, actually having a look at the having a look at the actual buildings and the actual construction. Um, so, I mean, you have you have to kind of take the argument in parts. I mean, I suppose what, what, the first thing that we're saying is, even if there is social mix, is that always and necessarily a good thing? Uh, and his paper, uh, his thesis, started with this really interesting anecdote about you know some of, some of his um, his his, his uh, African mates playing basketball late at night, uh, and then the lights going out because the private residents across the road from the estate were complaining um, about the fact that you know that there were these kids up late, um, and. Then they say to each other, well, you know, that's not going to be anything until after the redevelopment when the private residents actually come onto the estate, you know. I mean, we're just going to get thrown off here. Um, so and also their, their, their standards are going to be applied to everybody. Exactly, exactly. So there's this question of, well, I mean, is social... Who is, so his, so, the, so his, his thesis is called, Why Do We Need Social Mix? And that comes from some of his friends going, well, why do we need social mix? I mean, like, who's it actually for? <laughs> who's, who's benefiting from, from the fact that the light's going to come off earlier and earlier? So, you know, I mean, there is this question that, that needs to be asked. And, and it's very interesting because it's often met with this kind of, you know, shock horror from, from politicians and policymakers. You know, how dare you? How could you possibly suggest that, you know, these concentrations of disadvantage and these, you know, pockets of poverty uh, could be, you know, anything other than a terrible thing. Um, and and <laughs> there are two things that I like to point to. Number one is that there is quite a lot of literature that comes out, especially from the UK, that says actually you have, not to romanticise it, but you have communities of solidarity, of like mind, of similar class and socioeconomic structure who may benefit um, from being in close proximity with each other. Um, the second thing to say is that in the inner city estates in Melbourne, Kensington, Carlton, and, you know, they're looking at, well, they've started on Paran, um, they've been looking at Richmond and Fitzroy, and they're looking at, you know, at, at, at a whole other kind of ring. Those inner city estates are very, very well serviced by public transport, schools, you know, local sports centres, libraries, senior citizen centres. And they are little islands, if you like, of public housing in seas of private housing. That's right. So the Very expensive. private neighbours... Very expensive private, private yes, <laughs> housing. Exactly, very expensive private But the point is that the, the private neighbours are right across the road. You know, I mean, like in Carlton, they're just across Cannington, Canning Street. They're just across Rathdown Street. They're just across Prince Street. Do you know? I mean, it's they're just across Elgin Street. It's so it's not as though I mean, we're not talking Baltimore, you know, of the wire here. We're not talking about you know massive estate after estate after estate, and you know, sort of huge neighbourhoods of you know, like really deeply institutionalised poverty, which is also, of course, in, 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 in the US cities. Why this is such a uh, crucial intersection of uh, the whole issue is that this government is actually giving away public assets, public land that was for public tenants. 
to private hands and thus exacerbating this notion of inequality and you're a lesser person. I mean, this is why it's so disgraceful. yeah, and 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 that and that's precisely uh, the 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 element that distresses Abdullahi and me also that the sale of public assets is I mean it's never it's never we're never going to get them back. The sale of this land is is unsustainable. At some point down the track, uh, further upgrades are going to be needed to the public housing, and when there's nothing left. To sell, what happens then? I mean, the point is that the state, as a responsible property owner, should be maintaining its properties in a reasonable fashion, and it should have been doing so, you know, ever since they were built. Of course, just the way every other private, you know, property owner is expected to. Uh, and this whole kind of rationale that is spun by the government. In, in saying, oh, the state's a terrible, you know, land manager, property owner. We shouldn't be in the business of housing. Is is like di- disingenuous to the extreme. Hi, I'm. No, S- I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, <laughs> testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to Three C. And you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Kim and Annie. And uh, that was uh, Kate Shaw talking about uh, her co-authored paper about mm. uh, the uh, the mix, as it were, at the uh, uh, Carlton public housing, private housing uh, experiment that's been put in place by the uh, government. I in think it's Victoria. a foregone conclusion, can I say that? Yeah, I think right. it always was. It was an excuse, not an experiment. Yeah, exactly. And but it's been used as uh, one of the uh, foundations for this business of a holus bolus, a briefing paper, towards uh, selling off uh, nine other well placed public uh, housing estates across Melbourne by Martin Foley and the Andrews government. Uh, shame, shame, shame. And uh, and this rubbish about them not being a good manager of the properties. Well, yes, they haven't been a good manager because it seems, in my opinion, that they've been trying to personally run them, that they've been trying to run them into the ground. Well, but they can look after their own offices mm, nicely they've got enough. Form. They've got form. They basically. can look after their investment properties. Yeah, exactly. No, no, no. It's it's not on. It's, it's an outrage. And uh, people should be outraged. And uh, people who were outraged... Uh, Got went to the uh, steps and have been coming there every month uh, to Parliament's steps to uh, say that actually trying to make it clear to the public that we should be defending and extending public housing. And uh, Joe Toscano, who uh, usually kicks it, kicks off the uh, rallies, had uh, this to say on Thursday because he's convinced that this is a campaign that can be won and that uh, everyone should actually get on get on board get on board good to see you here while there's one we have a campaign and a lot of people think this is this is the beauty of this campaign a lot of people think well it doesn't affect me it's got nothing to do with me i mean public housing is basically for the dregs. That's what they think. You know, it's quite an extraordinary mindset we all have. I think people don't understand the link 
between a strong public housing sector, rents and house prices. This affects this rally 92% of Australians, 92%. If you're part of the investment class and you've got two homes and you're getting ready for your overseas trips when you retire, well, this is not a rally for you. But if you are renting, if you're paying off your mortgage, if you own your own home and you're having trouble paying the bills, if you're homeless, you're having trouble getting accommodation, this is the rally for you. Because we theoretically lived in what's called a mixed economy, where you've got private and public competing in the same marketplace, private and public. When you remove the public element, the private element self-regulates and exploits. Simple. Those of you who are old enough to remember when the Commonwealth Bank was around, it acted as, as publicly owned, it acted as competition to the private banks. When the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, there was no competition and they formed a cartel. I've been saved. Thank you, co-convener. John, what? Thank you. So, we've been saved. So, seriously, you want affordable housing in this state? You need a strong public housing sector. Now, 98% of the people in that house, our representatives, support the privatisation of what's left of the public housing sector. And they try to fudge the story. They kind of equate community housing, social housing, affordable housing, public housing, as all one and the same. One and the same. Well, in reality, it's not. Community housing, affordable housing, social housing is privately owned and managed. It is privatisation by stealth. And across this city and regional Victoria, we are now involved in a long campaign till the next state election in November next year. This is a long campaign, we'll be here every month to actually open people's eyes to what's happening. There are walk-up units around this state which are earmarked for demolition. People who have been living there for 30 to 40 years, raised families, will be forcefully evicted. For the last 10 years, we've seen minimal maintenance, just emergency maintenance on these estates. And we've seen the rundown of these estates as government policy, and then government steps in and says, it needs to be redeveloped. The people in these estates will be forcefully removed. And they don't even have the right of return. They have to reapply three to four years down the track when the site is redeveloped. But is the site redeveloped by the state government? No. The site will be redeveloped by a public-private partnership, which will provi provide 80% private housing, 20% public housing, 
And that public housing won't be managed by the Ministry of Housing, it'll be managed by the community social affordable housing sector, which are private organisations, some for profit, some not for profit, who basically have their own agenda in terms of what type of people they will allow into their units. So you will see initially the management and eventually the titles to these 20% of public housing which will be re-established go to the private sector. So this is defend and extend. So there are three things we can do. One, we can have these small rallies and rallies on the estates and rallies around the state to actually highlight to people what is going on. Because most people have no idea. Highlight the link between public housing, tenancy, buying your own home. Highlight that valuable link. Secondly, the second thing we should be looking at, and it's going to be very difficult here in Victoria, but a little bit easier in New South Wales, where exactly the same program is going on, is forming links with the trade union movements, especially the CFMEU, which is the Construction Mining, Forestry and Energy Union, to actually put green bans or bans on the redevelopment of these estates unless they are redeveloped for public housing. The Northcote Estate at 11 High Street that's going to be redeveloped into a 19-storey uh, apartment complex, which will all be mainly for private profit. So, unfortunately, because of the strong links between the Andrews-led Labor government and the CFMEU, it is going to be difficult. But that is something that people involved in this movement are working on, that interaction with the trade union movement in terms of putting a ban on the demolition of these estates unless the people there are given the right of return and unless they are all public housing, not private housing. That's the second thing. The third thing we can do is direct action. You will find that over the next 12 months, two years, that a number of people on these estates will refuse to move and they'll be, have to be forcefully evicted, which will highlight what's happening to people in this state to people, public housing tenants. And in that situation, we, may be, we should be able to provide some type of physical support to prevent the eviction or slow down the eviction. And the trouble is those few people who are going to resist eviction will find they'll be blacklisted by the community, social and affordable housing sector because they'll be deemed to be troublemakers. That's the third thing we can do. So, in terms of defending, which is a, a, a reactive campaign to what has been proposed, that's going to be done. One, education. Tell people what's happening. Rallies like this. Two, interaction with the trade union movement in order, in order to get bans on these sites unless it's all redevelopment for public housing. And three, a little bit of direct action, a little bit of direct support for those few people who will resist being removed from their homes. Then we look at the proactive, because it's defend and extend public housing. And as I said before, this is a campaign that doesn't just affect the homeless and housing tenants, it affects most people who are renting, who can't get into the housing market. It affects first home buyers and older people who are trying to get into the housing market, have been priced out of the housing market, where it's not unusual to pay a million dollars for a house 
within 10 k's, 15 k's of the Melbourne CBD. Because if you've got a strong, vibrant public housing sector, the private sector, it'll force rents down and force pr prices down for first home buyers. So the only ones who'll suffer will be investors and they get a tax deduction anyway. So how do you do that? People say, how are you going to finance this? Well, it's very simple. $6 billion was collected in stamp duty in the state of Victoria by the state government for, for uh, people buying homes. That is the direct tax on buying a home in this state. As prices increase, the amount of stamp duty you pay increases and people are now paying 100, 120,000 stamp duty. $6 billion was raised. While this government can find billions of dollars to remove 50 level crossings and billions of dollars, you know, to extend the public transport, the privatised public transport system, my apologies, it doesn't seem to have the guts or the will to allocate money to the public housing sector. They would like it to see it die wither on the vine. With that $6 billion, if that $6 billion is quarantined for public housing, and don't forget, they also get another 5 or $6 billion from land tax, which is a different tax on people, on businesses and people who own more than one home. So if you quarantine that $6 billion, you use $1 billion to manage and run the public housing sector, pay the people necessary to do that. With that $5 billion, you could build or buy 20,000 units or houses in the state of Victoria every year. So this campaign is winnable and it can be won before the next state election. And I'll tell you why. Because this state has got a problem. This government has a problem. This opposition has a credibility problem. And if four seats change hands in the inner city, and that's quite possible, Mr Foley, the Minister for Housing, you know, is up down at Albert Park, Mr Wynne in Richmond, and the list goes on and on, what you could have is a hung parliament. And currently, although they're under increasing pressure to from the affordable and community housing sector to ditch the policy. Currently, the Victorian Greens have a policy of supporting public housing. And it was that policy which saw two of their members elected in the city of Melbourne and in Parang, because they door knock the public housing estates. And there are large estates with large number of voters. Now, if the Greens get the balance of power and enough pressure is placed on them, it's a possibility that, as we saw in England, where the, uh, the May-led uh, Tory government was willing to give a billion dollars to the Northern Ireland to get a coalition, it could be the same thing could happen. That part of the debate would be allocate $6 billion that goes into public housing, that goes from stamp duty into public housing in the state. This is a very winnable campaign. But we do need more people over, the, over time. I'm going to give away the microphone in a minute. I'd like you to hang on, stay on the topic of public housing or housing. Some people come to these rallies. 
Yeah, there we go. We'll leave Joe there telling his people that he they need to keep on topic, and we are. We're on topic of affordable housing, mm. yeah, and he's just outlined the way that it could po- possibly be won. I was uh, corrected where someone rang in and said that it's it was on Wednesday. It was actually Wednesday, July the 5th, Wednesday at 12, and they will be there again next month, um, an early part of the uh, month, and it will be a Wednesday and it will be at 12. Uh, uh, someone else rang in to say that there's a book fair at uh, Oakley Holy Trinity Church Hall, corner of Warrigal and Dandenong Road. It's for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, which, as I was saying to Kim, isn't it amazing that the Flying Doctor Service has to rely on charity? That mm. says something in itself. It starts at 9am and goes to 3pm, a book fair, Oakley Holy Trinity Church Hall, corner of Warrigal and Don- Dandenong Road. There you go. That's the end of our uh, affordable housing stint. We're going to go on to something that happened last week, which was the... Uh, decision by the Fair Work, uh, Fair Work Commission. I always stumble over that word, Fair and Work Commission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very Orwellian. Yeah, it is. <laughs> anyway, yeah, especially as I report on workers' uh, uh, rights on Stick Together. But anyway, you get to have an intimate connection to that uh, concept of fair. Anyway. Uh, Perhaps we should just call it unfair and just go with that. <laughs> the Unfair Work Commission's decision. On family violence leave. Yeah, and uh, this is Lisa Heap. And uh, Matt, thanks, Matt, for this interview. Joining me now on the line is Lisa Heap, the lead women's organiser from the Victorian Trades Hall Council. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about the Fair Work Commission's decision this week to grant family violence leave to workers in Australia? The Fair Work Commission has decided to amend modern awards to include a provision for unpaid family violence leave in all awards. Unfortunately, um, the Commission decided not to accept the ACTU and the union movement's application for 10 days paid leave. So even though the Commission found that family violence was a significant community issue and that it does disrupt workforce participation and that it disproportionately affects women, it did not make a decision to accept the application for paid leave. So Lisa, the difference between paid and unpaid family violence leave, what does that mean for people who are suffering from family violence? What does that mean for them in the workplace? It, it means that they, um, it's been accepted that um, the work, workplace should uh, provide an appropriate response, but unfortunately those, for those people, they'll have to use either unpaid leave or access their uh, personal leave, including their sick leave, in order to take leave for those purposes. So it means that for women who are the majority of people who are subjected to family violence, they'll be running down their leave balances, particularly their sick leave, in order to um, be able to handle the issues that are associated with um, their experience of family violence. And can you tell us a little bit about what this leave is meant to be used for? Yeah, the leave is meant to be used for things like attendance at courts or attendance at police stations, for attendance at doctors or for schools to make arrangements for new arrangements for children or to attend counselling and support services. So it's a really crucial um, need that's being met at the time and um, that's why, for example, at the um, Victorian trade union movement has been 
um, arguing for and, and getting through bargaining um, 20 days family violence leave um, because it was sort of the evidence shows that that's probably uh, what a person will need if they are experiencing family violence. So at the moment there are some union workplaces that have this paid family violence leave. The Fair Work Commission is now saying it will introduce 10 days of unpaid family violence leave, is that correct? Uh, the quantum's not clear. I think it's up to 10 days. There's still some arguments to be had about how that will all pan out. Yeah, so it's a bit confusing still um, at this stage. But yeah, I think it will be up to 10 days and the that will come from other leave balances or the person who is experiencing family violence will be able to take unpaid leave. So what the Fair Work Commission is saying, if I read this correctly, is that uh, people who have experienced family violence will be able to use their existing paid leave but are not getting anything new from this Fair Work Commission decision. No, they're not. Well, they're, then they're not really getting anything that solves the problem that they have um, from this um, decision. Uh, so, I mean, the important thing I think for everyone to to realise is that the Commission didn't knock back the um, application that the unions made on the basis that it wasn't a sound proposal. What they did was say that technically under the Act, there was a very, very high bar that had to be met because the rules that have been set for how um, awards can be reviewed. And even though there was significant evidence presented by um, unions, that, that high, that very high bar, there was a question as to whether it was met. So what I think the Commission was saying was... You know, there's a really sound argument from the unions for this need to be met and for it to be met by an amendment to awards. But, you know, there would have to be, you know, very substantial evidence to demonstrate why it should be 10 days paid leave. So what are the next steps in the campaign? Well, we have to keep going and campaigning in this area. Firstly, we know that just accessing your sick leave or other entitlement is not going to help women who are experiencing family violence. You know, they're all, already uh, women disproportionately use those sorts of leave entitlements in order to care for uh, or for the caring responsibilities they might have for children or for old, um, older parents. So this is just really, really frustrating for, for working women who might be experiencing this. So we have to keep campaigning. And, you know, it just demonstrates yet again that the rules that govern our, um, our workplace laws are not really responsive to women's needs. So we have to keep campaigning for a change there to make sure the laws, the rules um, are changed and the laws reflect what working women's needs and experiences are. Do we need to change the laws for this to become a reality or are there other ways that workers out there can, can chase this without the assistance of the Fair Work Commission? Yeah, well, we need to keep bargaining for it um, on the ground with our unions and fighting for what we believe to be what should be the minimum standard 20 paid days leave. And we, at the same time, we need to be fighting for the rules to be changed so that every worker, regardless of whether you get an enterprise agreement in place or not, can have access to what should be a minimum right. And if people want to get more involved in the campaign to fight for family violence leave, what can they do? Um, that would be great to contact us here at the Victorian Trades Hall Council. You can get more information on our website, which is unionwomen.org. And you also have contact details for how you can get involved in the campaign. Lisa Heap, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed, and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5 pm. 
For tickets, phone 9650 5699 or book online at bellyunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. G'day, Kevin. Ah, good morning, Annie. How are you? Good. We're so lucky to have you live. Good morning, Kevin. <laughs> well, you are. Yeah, you're lucky I'm live anyway. I'm lucky I'm alive <laughs> as well. But uh, yeah, yeah, yesterday it was Nadoc Week uh, programming, so we didn't get to record. But uh, but it's, it's just before I go on, the, 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 you mentioned the end of affordable housing. Well, I think it is the end of affordable housing, really. But it, it's such a meaningless term, isn't it? Because you know, if you sit and watch all the all the skyscrapers in the city and the cranes and all the developers and the billions. They'd probably have a different view to affordable to mm. say the homeless on the street below who can't find a roof over their head. Yeah, I think you're right there. Yeah, apparently so, a million dollar average across most of the suburbs is affordable. It must be affordable for someone. That's right. Someone can afford it. But Kerry Packer or James Packer can. Kerry probably can't anymore. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Burn. Oh, yeah, that's right. Also, but it's uh, they also use social housing now instead of public, of course, and that's quite different, as you know. And it's um, it's a worry. I think that's insidious. Yeah. But anyway, let's, off you go. Let's get going. Anyway, a week solidarity, Bricky team listener. When what a great day Tuesday for a true blue Aussie. Our Independence Day. Goodbye, Mother Country. Welcome, Uncle Sam Country. Although that will change shortly, but we'll come to that. The in in independence, reflecting our dependencies in. This is the greatest July for ever, ever, because we now have the greatest big supremo ever, ever, the most popular ever, ever. Very good, very, very good. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dumbo, Yankee Dumbo do or die, a real live nephew of my Uncle Sam, born on the 4th of July. But due to overwhelming popular support, I am about to sign this presidential decree, very good, that in future, Uncle Sam will be known as Uncle Donald. Good. Very, very good. So now the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world is our Uncle Donald. Maybe the Stars and Stripes gods oversaw Hawthorne getting up against Collingwood Sunday so the footy world could hear their theme song at this time, the George M. Cohen Yankee Doodle tune, of course. Nathan Buckley could argue, therefore, it was out of his control. The U.S. of Eagle Gods intervened. But what somber celebrations, despite having the greatest big supremo ever, ever, for they were held under the threat, the cloud of imminent invasion, as good, good, peace-loving U.S. of and its secretary for world state Rex Killamson denounced evil, evil, war-loving North Korea as the biggest threat to world peace ever, ever. Who tweeted that? Anyway, testing all these skyrockets as it reacts to the U.S. of and good, good, peace-loving South Korea conducting train-killer war games off its borders, making it think for some silly reason maybe they're practicing for the real thing. And to show it would fight for peace, the good, good U.S. of reacted by holding more train-killer war games on evil, evil North Korea's border. And China said maybe North Korea would stop firing skyrockets 
skyrockets if you stop practicing to invade it and the good, good, peace-loving US I've said that would be giving in to evil, to evil war-loving North Korea's threats and all that shows just how rational all this is. And Trubler was he naturally, it's axiomatic really, Trubler was he good, good, peace-loving Trubler was he said evil North Korea was a threat to the whole world and we would do whatever Donald and Rex order us to do and we asked Rex, we the week that was that is, asked Rex how many bases or train killer personnel the biggest threat to world peace has around the world. Ah, uh, well, none, but they've got these dangerous skyrockets. Everyone knows skyrockets can be very dangerous. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, but when I said the biggest threat, I didn't mean little evil North Korea, but how many bases and train killer personnel has good, good, peace-loving US I've got around the world? Ha! Where haven't we? That's how much we love peace! Uh, which just goes to show how far the USR will go to make the world a safer place. And we all feel even safer with Donald and Rex deciding on where and how they'll maintain that peace. We will maintain our commitment to the Korean Peninsula, Rex threatened. So, sorry, sorry, promised. Whether they want it or not. Bit like the caring business class party and former big supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses. They're stuck with him whether they want him or not. Tiny's relentless fight against disloyalty led current big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull to dismiss Tiny's invaluable advice by declaring he is about getting things done and not talking in slogans as if Mr. Stop the boats, stop the boats, rescind the carbon tax, rescind the carbon tax, lower taxes, lower taxes, whatever talk in slogans. Uh, getting things done, Malcolm. Jobs and growth, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. Uh, no slogans, no slogans. And no sloganized news. Thank goodness we have such objective coverage of the real news in our mainstream media. Take Monday's telly newses and Tuesday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin entire front page. Yes, let's go to the most serious, the most critical, the most pertinent event in the whole world in the week that was sport. An AFL official bashed an opposition player in a match between West Preston Lakeside and Whittlesea at the weekend. Phew, earth shattering. Seriously, we can't think of anything in the whole world more important. For goodness sake, without this in-depth story, they might have to bring us real news in order to fill in the spaces between the ads. By Thursday, Lord Rupert brought us a double-page colour spread with lots of pickies of a 22-year-old Troublawazi tennis player who spent the night at a nightclub, a Soho nightclub, mind you, with, wait for it, with girls after doing what Troublawazis do and bombing out of Wimbledon day one. A 22-year-old male nightclubbing with girls. Good God, what's the world coming to? What's wrong with young people today? But news we needed to know. News? Given he's a brat whom most people, quite rightly, can't stand. While we're dispensing praise, I know we've been a bit critical about poor Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle in the brain department, but we really have to admire his self-awareness. In Rome, no fool there, about a minute and a half, give or take, slight touch of hyperbole, after Parliament rose for the winter get away from the cold recess, Barnacle turned up in the Northern Hemisphere summer at our expense. 
although on the no fool there bit, the hubris of being acting big supremo drew Barnacle back to our true blue Aussie winter by week's end. So let's hope nothing happens. Although we kicked off day one announcing we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea, which went down a treat with those who really matter, who spent the rest of the day explaining Barnacle didn't mean we could place trade bans on China over evil North Korea, confirming our concerns about Barnacle, but Rome. Asked to comment on what Tiny had in mind about something or other, Barnacle announced he couldn't comment on what was on someone else's mind. I have enough trouble with my own. No satire. That's what he said. And the rest of the interview confirmed his worry. But I thought, good on you, Barnacle, bit of self-awareness. Although, must say, as Barnacle negotiated with all these European trade ministers and officials, what must they think of us if this bloke's a senior minister? Still, what confidence in the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector, this state public purchase of that unsustainable, hardwood, super-efficient private company, because the company threatened to close down because it couldn't get its chainsaws on enough unsustainable. Only question, though. If they're planning to close down anyway, why pay a cent, let alone hand them billions? Wait for them to close and start your own company, keeping the sustainable bit in mind. Public version of a Phoenix company. But as the shareholders rub their hands together excitedly and laugh all the way too, they've certainly discovered all about sustainable. Our finances are looking very sustainable. On related matters, we have to feel for Business Profits Council Supremo Grantham Nothing King, prevented from doing what he'd love to do. After the Reserve Bank Supremo Phil Low Wages suggested workers shouldn't be afraid of asking for higher wages, given there's no chance they'll succeed. After poor Grantham Nothing had recovered via the smelling salts, he pointed out caring employers would love nothing more than to give workers pay rises, given the experts who know all about these things complain one of the major problems with the economy is slow wages growth, a, a problem which we've continually pointed out seems to have an obvious solution. Business would be delighted to see incomes grow, he stressed, but well, the other mechanisms, whatever they are, weren't in place and prices needed to rise because they were rising slower than wages, which is news to all of us. So imagine Grantham nothing's hurt, despair at not being able to do what he would so love to do. On the same hand, Chamber of Profits Supremo Innes Wiley Fox exhaled, exhaled relief that fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices just looks like it, had not caved into evil union demands that casual workers be deemed not casual after six months of regular work, but irresponsibly did grant the claim for workers after 12 months. This decision at least gives these people secure, insecure work for 12 months, but it, it's still a pity. Their position will now have to be reviewed at 11 months and 29 days. And in a said, no satire, no embellishment, that if the union six-month claim had been granted, it would have spelt the end of true blue Aussie labour relations. He really said that showing just how delicate a flower is the economy, how precariously it hangs by an unravelling threat, how it is only reasonable, therefore, that caring employers reject every selfish claim by evil unions 
although in this case, Retail Profits Council's Supremo Russell Zapperman did presage the end of the world through the 12-month secure insecure decision. Caring retail profits employers needed flexibility, win-win, as workers have the security of knowing their insecurity will continue which they can explain to the landlord. Now, there's one much-admired group which does not require flexibility. The money or else! And finally, thankfully, on the positive side, Russell and the caring employers can exhale that sigh of relief in that most affected, in that most affected casual insecures, no relation to sinecures, are on enterprise agreements and not on award conditions, so caring employers can continue to avoid this crippling decision. Phew! That unravelling thread which, thread which hangs between the greatest little economic order and disaster may hold together a little longer. We can, we can only hope. Good morning. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. G'day. Ooh. Humphrey? Hello there. Oh, <laughs> so nice to hear your voice. Yeah, that was a bit uh, yeah, exciting. Well, I've need both of yours. <laughs> and just following on from what we're saying, the Bank for International Settlements is also very concerned that the whole global economy is hanging by a thread of opportunity. Okay. Um, and that's, well, I mean, I've, what I put in the notes, I've said, well, it's an article rather than a note, I got carried away. Um, and there's too much for us to be able to get through, so we'll have to take out the big points. But you can put it all up on the site along with the sort of summary of the notes and some of the quotations from the report. Where we are, 10 years ago, I stumbled upon the annual report for the Bank for International Settlements, and this was June 2007. And they said the world is threatened with a 1930s-style slump. I thought, wow, you know, who are these people? So that was 10 years ago. And, of course, needless to say, they, um, what was about to happen in uh, September 2008 was that prospect, you know, it was only... Uh, the reason it didn't happen was because governments massively intervened. So they were right about that, and I've followed them since. Um, and so this is the 10 year since their first report. And what we want to say today is a bit about where they now think the global capitalist system is up to. So the Bank for International Settlements, what do they do? What do they do? Well, exactly? they mainly collect data and uh, between trades, between the commercial banks, between the central banks, um, they've done many things over there. They started in 1930 where they did what their title says. They were part of an attempt, the final attempt, to get the Germans to pay the reparations that had been imposed on them after the First World War. So that this notion of international settlements was the money that Germany was supposed to owe to France and everybody else. And it's gone through several stages. And, you know, I mean, I put a bit of that up on the website, we, you know, Perhaps, you know, we won't go there, it'll take too much time. But what they've been doing in the last, well, 
Well, since the late 1990s, they spent the 90s pushing to establish a single currency in the European Union. They were very proud about that. They've managed not to say very much about it in this report because everybody else is saying it's fallen apart. Um, but since then, their major activity has been collecting data. They're probably the, the best endowed non-government think tank anywhere in the world. Um, and they also, of course, are the best informed because they have access to all this banking data that everybody passes around in the world. So that's fundamentally what they do. Some people say, you know, in a kind of hyping way, oh, the secret bank that runs the world to which the bank officials would say, if only. <laughs> uh, yeah, because they're not like the IMF, are they? They don't have that power. They don't set interest rates. They can't print money. All of those things that central banks do. I mean, unlike the monsters at the European Central Bank, uh, they don't have any of that power. Their power is that of ideas, of influence. Um, you know, and, I must say, you know, Humphrey, I like your description of the IMF depriving them of investment funds if they don't sell off assets and open up to the global corporates. That's the yeah, IMF well, relationship with that, governments. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I mean, even they have had to pull their head in because of the disasters that have followed in the last 10 years. You know, I mean, even, even the IMF has had to learn something from the disasters that flowed on from their policies. And if you read the Bank for International Settlements report, we've got to remember, these are not left-wing people in any <laughs> sense at all. I mean, there's none of that. What their interest is in the long-term survival of the entire system they're not just pushing for the the interests of the you know, one section of of capital in inside one area of the world. Their perspective, what they're trying to do, and this means that at the moment they're very concerned to make sure that the victims of the system are paid some attention to. You know, the people like the poor old Greeks, for example, although they managed to do the report without mentioning the word Greece. Um, um, but... So they are concerned to create some kind of, 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 of compromise within it so that the system doesn't entirely fall over. But yeah. at the moment... So, so, they, so they think that uh, the system's only as strong as its weakest link, in a sense? Well, and the weakest link at the moment, I think they think, is probably the United States uh -huh. in terms of terms of the development of the, of the kind of policy options there. I mean, is this... What they fear is that the revival in the United States, which is their opportunity to do something to fix up all the problems um, and to... Well, see, see, what they see is the biggest problem is all the money that's flowed out into the system you know, with, with quantitative easing and the printing of funds and the zero interest rates. They're very alarmed about this. They say you cannot go on like this forever. At some point you're going to have to go back in the other direction. Well, they the should say that, that to happened, the Japanese because that's their system. Oh, well, the, well, I mean, the, and it is for the Chinese. You know, and the whole of the Chinese system depends upon keeping pumping money out um, and shadow banking and, you know, God knows what's going on there. I mean, it's interesting with the report that... They can't even write it in the way in which you sense they'd really like to be, able, uh, to be able to put it into words. So they can't attack Donald Trump outright. <laughs> they can't say the Chinese are going down the plug hole. They, that would be a bit but rude. When you read it, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, the, the Chinese Central Bank is a part of their sort of, you know, sort of supervisory organisation. So, yes, they have to acknowledge that, you know, that, that the Chinese, the ratio of the national debt and all the debts to their gross domestic product is, well, people don't know for sure, but it's approaching 300%. Um, and the Japanese are about the same. Uh, and people say, well, you know, I mean, what the bank's terrified of is that these, what should be exceptional circumstances, that governments and corporations are saying, well, this is how it is going to be forever. And the bank's saying, well, I'm sorry, it can't be. At some point, we have to wind back. We have to get out of all this debt. And their fear is that unless this opportunity, this slight improvement in areas of the, of the global economy, if, if that is squandered, and that's what they fear is likely to happen, um, then what they've been warning of, because you see, in 2014, they said all that has happened is the government has printed all this money, got interest rates down, and all it has done is to postpone the day of reckoning. Two years later, last year, they said, by postponing the day of reckoning, they've made everything worse. Now, they think, God, this is the one opportunity. This is there's this little, you know, and they fear it might be a false dawn, to use their phrase, uh, but it's there and they've got to take advantage of it. And they fear that, and this is interesting, the Bank for International Settlements is very strong on even stronger regulations as to what the banks can get up to. Hmm. Because they see, um, they understand probably better than anybody else, what kind of disasters follow when the banks are just allowed to do whatever they like, which is what, you know, what the US administration is now saying. Oh, Obama went too far with controls. We're going to take them all off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the um, the, uh, they had something to say about... Uh, the loss of power uh, represented by uh, the low wages. Uh, they do indeed. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very striking. Um, I mean, they put it in words other than, you know, that we might on 3CR, we might talk about the class of struggle, um, or even slightly more politely, the relative strength of the contending classes. <laughs> but what they say, what they say is that... What has happened is that the working class has lost its pricing power, is their phrase. Oh, what right. that means is that, you know, that our ability as a class to have any influence over the, over the level of our real wages has really gone down the tubes. And they are quite concerned about that, partly because of the political effects. They're very alarmed. What they're saying is that in the last 12 months, the biggest threats to the system have all been political rather than economic. Um, Do they have some sense of history or they're just going on what's happened recently? Oh, I think, you know, I think they, you know, the people there uh, probably do have a pretty good sense of history. I mean, the fact that they could even think back to the 1930s slump probably takes them a long way further back in history than most of the economic commentators are able to go. You know, so oh no, I think I, I I think they really do have. I mean, I mean, you know, yeah. I think they certainly have that. Um, but at the moment, what they're concerned is is that that if would we go back to an age of protectionism, if there's political further political instability, which in their terms means, you know, things like the the English you know, the 
the United Kingdom's vote to leave the, the, the European Union, uh, protectionism um, out of the United States, a weakening of the international banking controls that are just about to be put in place. Uh, all of those things say, if we do this, if the world goes down that path, then the day of reckoning is really going to hit us. Uh, and we have no mechanisms in place uh, to be able to truly soften the blows because what they do see, they do understand that the system is going to produce another recession. They understand in a way in which most economics textbooks don't is that the system's unstable, that there is no equilibrium point. There's no sort of permanent Goldilocks moment in which you can balance everything out. They understand that perfectly well and they're frightened that if, if, if the things that they are in favour of aren't put in place, and in fact the ones that are in place are pulled back, then there's going to be a God Almighty crash again. Um, so they're some of the things that they are truly concerned about. But they are concerned about the level of wages for the same reason that the Governor of the Reserve Bank is, because it's keeping, it's keeping down prices. And you know it is bizarre to think that now... 2% inflation is an essential for the capitalist system. In the 1930s, even 0.2% inflation was looked upon as if it was the works of Satan. Oh. And all inflation had to be driven out of the system. And in a way, the learning of the disasters of the 30s has penetrated mostly into a lot of economic thinking. No more than 2%. We mustn't let it get out of control, but there has to be some inflation. That uh, sounds like a person who's got a sugar addiction uh, that's trying to go on a diet. Well, this is their problem. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I make the point of is that when I was reading through the report, at first I thought, oh dear, here we go. This is the bland leading the overconfident. But then as I read on, I realised that underneath they were issuing some very stern warnings still about the state of, of the global economy. Thank goodness we've got you to read it and translate it for us. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not, it's not all that difficult, but it takes time. It took a couple of days for me to, you know, I mean, I'm, I was only happy to do it to, to be able to, to make this information available. I mean, I think that's that's one of the kind of things we're able to do. So some of it will go up on the 3CR side. But what they're saying is the list of recommendations they have, I mean, it's just extraordinary the things that they run through to. And so, I mean, I'll quickly run through them. Um, they've got to get off the zero interest rates and they've got to stop printing money. They've got to reject protectionism. They've got to take better care of the victims of globalisation. They've got to stamp out tax evasion, strengthen banking regulation, boost productivity and technological change. I thought to myself, oh, yeah, how are you going to do that before breakfast? Well, the politicians that, are all going to have heart attacks. Well, to do, to do any one of those, you'd imagine the kind of outrage that would be, you know... Sort of, well, a lot of uh, people have been focusing on the, on the tax dodging. Yeah, indeed. Um, but even there, we see how much resistance there is to it. So to do all of these things, and this is what they say, we've got to do all of these things for the system to survive and to make the most of this one little window of opportunity that we've seen in the last, well, what, what they see, mainly improvements in the American economy. Um, but, um, you know, 
you know, much of the rest of the world, I mean, they, they do acknowledge that, you know, as we say, China and Japan and much of Europe, you know, none of this is, is, is to be seen there. But they're terrified that that things like this won't happen, or indeed, like you know, tax, um, protectionism, banking regulation in the US, all of those things will go in the other direction. And this reminded me the complexity of what they were recommending. I thought, if this is what you've got to do, it reminded me of what I get out of reading Marx's Volume 2. Now, we've been talking about the 150th anniversary of Volume 1, which will be, I think, in eight weeks today. Mm -hmm. um, we'll be back on air four weeks from now and then four weeks again. We'll be able to have a birthday party on the 2nd of September. But this reminded me of Volume 2. Now... I mean, I've, you know, I mean, this is no occasion to start spelling out everything in the 600 pages of Volume 2. But what Marx does in it is to outline the complexity of the capitalist system. Uh, how many bits have to work together for the whole system to be able to function? Uh, it's, you know, I mean, many people, and I'm very inclined to agree with them, have said that Volume 2 is Marx's greatest intellectual achievement. How anybody could hold all of that in their head at one time, at a time in which it was only just beginning to be clear in the reality of capitalism in the early, in the early 1860s. It was just at that moment. Well, there's no there doubt about was. it. Marx was a smart guy. Well, yeah, but I mean, there were, there were plenty of smart guys around, but it's, I think it's partly that he was looking at it from the outside and he wasn't committed to the system in the way in which other smart guys at the time may well have been and therefore were ideologically blinded to what the system had to do. And when I ex try to explain to people pretty simply about what it is that's in volume two, what I get out of it, one of the things I take away is if you think that all of these things have to happen at once for the system to work, the amazing thing is not that it ever falls over. It's not amazing then that you have a 1930s-style crash or that you have the last 10 years of what they call secular stagnation in the economy. The amazing thing is that it ever works at all. We'll have and to leave it there, Humphrey. Have to leave it there. Okay. And how they leave it there is they crash the gears. So we'll all have to get down and read Volume 2. We'll be back in four weeks. Thanks, Humphrey. Here it is again, 3CR Community Radio, the Concrete Gang. We've got our annual pull-up down at the uh, on July the 10th on the RDO for construction workers down at the Palace Hotel, City Road, South Melbourne at 11am. $20 tickets at the door, which entitles you a great food there. The Palace put on a great food. Also bring some extra, extra lovely, a few extra chickens in your pocket for the raffle tickets. $10 raffle ticket gives you a chance to win a string bean. It's a $5,000 travel voucher and a $500 booze voucher up for grabs. And live music from the Jaded Cats. Yes, so be there or be square to, to uh, South Melbourne, July the 10th on the RDO, 11am, City Road, South Melbourne, for the award-winning Concrete Gang. There to struggle, there to win. Yep, that's right. And we've come to the end of Solidarity Breakfast mm. today. We've been doing affordable housing. Yeah, we talked about gentrification and uh, we listened to Louisa, who was uh, giving a presentation about how the stuff in London is relevant here in Australia. That's right. Be scared. Be very scared. Exactly. We also had Kate Shaw, who was talking about a paper that her and her master's uh, student, Abdul, wrote about the social mix policy of the Victorian government and the sell-off of public housing assets. 
And Joe Toscano, uh, uh, Defend and Extend Public Housing, gave us the floor plan for how we can make this campaign work. We followed that with uh, Lisa Heap from the uh, Women's uh, Unit at uh, Trades Hall talking about the Fair Work Commission's decision on family violence leave last week. Kevin Healy came in. Live. Hey. And then uh, Humphrey which was great because he had a lot to tell us about the Bank for International Settlements. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with Tali Kang, Mia Dyson. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.